Welcome to the Dear Rochester Retire Well Podcast with David Pulsini from Six Point Financial Partners. In this podcast, find your path towards a brighter financial future with David as your guide as he helps individuals, educators, and healthcare professionals explore ways they can build wealth while minimizing risk using a multifaceted, comprehensive approach to personal finance. Are you ready to take the first step towards a brighter financial tomorrow? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back with Ken Krause for episode three of our Medicaid planning series. If you have not yet listened to our other episodes in this series, I highly recommend you check those out first. Those episodes are episodes 16 and 17 in our podcast. Uh, Ken has developed his own process and he has rightfully named these Medicaid 101, 201, and 301. So again, it makes sense to go back and start at episode 16, which coincides with Medicaid 101 and episode 17, which is 201. So please do that. Uh, Ken, thanks for coming back today. I'm surprised that you showed up this morning. I know you're a busy guy. Um, but let's give just a quick reminder of the last episode. We left off with talking about the application process and how, again, the listeners can't see this, but how thick that paper and how much paperwork it literally is. And you said 12 to 18 inches of just paperwork. So if you can visualize that, that's what it takes to get these applications done in many cases. And also Ken said uh, a quote, and it's an incredible burden of proof on the client and a tremendous amount of work to show these things. So, and that is where Ken and Medicaid attorneys or people that specialize in this can really add a tremendous amount of value in helping people. So Ken, after that groundwork is set, where do you take it from here starting into Medicaid. Thanks, Dave. Uh, great introduction. Uh, I, I like to I like to think in sort of logical order and you know, table of contents kind of approach. And so, really, you know, you got to do estate planning first. That's wills, process attorneys, healthcare proxies. Prior episodes have talked about that. Then, then you've got to have a basic knowledge of how Medicaid works. What are the eligibility rules? What's this application process look like? Why does it take twelve or eighteen inches? to be approved for Medicaid. And we've talked about that in prior episodes. That's what Dave just mentioned. Uh, once you have that base, then you could really get into the details. You could get into what people want to hear. Uh, you, you get into the knowledge I think they need in order to make decisions for themselves. It's stated differently, Dave. I never want a client to make a decision uninformed. I'm not making their decision for them. They need to go on this journey. And so today I think I hope, and Medicaid, what we're calling Medicaid 301, sort of the capstone, right? So now we can decide, are you a good candidate for protecting assets? Can you be proactive? Uh, or is really your only option to be reactive in the event of a crisis? So, so uh, I think you've asked in the past, Dave, a good question. I, is there a people want bright line tests. They want black and white, right? Is there, a, is there a, the right age to do this? Is there a particular situation that they should do this? Is it situational? Um, that's really, really hard for me to answer other than to say, uh, everybody's got different age. These are the four factors I always consider. Everybody's got different age considerations. Everybody's got different health factors. Everybody has different finances. And finances can be widely varied. And everybody has different motivations or what I sometimes call mission. Why? What's the purpose of this? And so, no, there really is no right age to start this or right situation. You really need 
to start trying to be proactive or consider being proactive, consider sheltering, preserving, protecting assets. You really need to consider all of these different factors in your own situation. If I had to pick an age, I'd say, you know, typically just after retirement, you know, if I had to pick an age just after retirement or maybe 10 years into retirement, when broadly speaking, your finances are fairly settled, your health is fairly good, your age is fairly young, and you're really starting to think about mission, you know, of, of your life and you're, you're more motivated to do this kind of planning. So I guess that would be my answer, but I'd hate to people to think that, that that's a be all end all. Ken, I okay. say this all the time. I say, someone will ask us a question. It's the same in financial services. They'll say, how should I invest my money? Or how much life insurance do I need? Or when should I do this? And I actually say, I, you might be mad at me about this. I will say, I don't want to sound like an attorney, but it depends. Yeah. <laughs> it's true, right? It's so right. true. Like, I have no idea how you should invest your money because right. I have no idea what else is going on. But what right. I can say is when you're working with any sort of professional that they've done it so many times, they, they know, and you know this, Ken, from your line of work, if somebody comes in, you can pretty much very quickly know where to start the process, when to start right. the process. There's just things that people don't know. They don't know what they don't know right. until you meet with somebody that then yeah. they can help you out. Right. That's well said, well-timed, well said, you know, uh, it's, when you have a lot of perspective and a lot of experience and, you know, honestly, I, I had a meeting with clients just this morning on these exact subjects. And, and this is honestly can be two, three times a day. Often when you have that kind of perspective, it doesn't take long. You 30, 45 minutes with somebody, I can fly through in my own head, these factors and figure out where they fit. But again, trying to give folks out there a kind of bright line test. There's not one really, but honestly, if you're in your fifties, and people ask this question, you're probably too young on the one of those four factors uh, to really consider being proactive. You know, if you're 90s, I don't know, maybe, maybe it still makes a lot of sense based on your, your finances, but probably not going to be all that relevant to be proactive. So anyway, uh, what does it mean to be proactive? <clears throat> I want to, I want to explore that subject, um, get to the heart of that. And then I want to explore these factors a little bit. Uh, to try to give our listeners a little bit of a sense of where we're going. To be proactive, it means at its heart to give away assets. Everybody stop for a second and think to yourself, are you ready, willing, and able to give away some assets? You know, there's a financial point there, obviously. Do you need the assets? There's a psychological point, loss of control. Proactive planning means loss of control. You know, people want to have it both ways. Everybody does. I do. And everything I do, I want to have it both ways. Well, that's just not how Medicaid works. Not when you already know and have the knowledge base we've talked about in 101 and 201 in our sessions. There's a cost to this, right? To get the benefit of asset protection, uh, you have to give something up. And that means loss of control because you have gifted away assets. Okay. So you got to be willing to at least engage in this conversation. Now, giving away different assets. Uh, 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 can come in many different forms and fashions. So for instance, giving away cash, you know, that's hard to do. You feel that. That's not in your bank account anymore, right? And so that might be really hard psychologically or financially to do. Giving away real estate, on the other hand, is not anywhere near as hard to do because Medicaid law allows you to retain interests in that land. Things like life estates, 
right? Life state interests, the right to use and occupy that property the rest of your life. And we'll get explore that a little bit later. I want to stay a little big picture right now. So different assets, harder to give away. So we need to go through your age, your four factors. We need to get, go through your age, your health, your finances, your motivation in some detail to sort of figure out, well, what applies to you? Um, I, I, think, I, I think age comes across pretty pretty straightforward. And I've already hit that, you know, certain ages don't really make much sense to be proactive. Let's move along in our life a little bit. Health will clearly help in all different, all different colors and shades. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a history of cognitive illness in your family, cognitive illness, you can typically live a lot longer in, in, in a, in a long-term care setting. You have a history of physical issues. If you already presently have these issues, right. Um, it, it obviously speeds up or slows down our process. Uh, finances is the big one. I hate to say this, Dave, <laughs> to my clients, especially when I'm not the financial advisor and I'm not a financial advisor. Do not take my financial advice. What I say with finances is, are you accumulating? What's your budget? I hate using the word budget. <laughs> I'm not putting my clients on a budget. Heck no, I don't care what you spend. I don't care. <laughs> I just need to know. What's your lifestyle like? The last thing I wanna do with proactive Medicaid planning when talking about giving away assets loss of control, the very last thing we're going to do is cause a negative uh, uh, lifestyle change. Heck no. Why would you do that, right? But, but Dave, so many people come to me with, with the fear of nursing home planning and long-term care costs. Maybe they've got personal experience. My clients this morning, all four of their parents, about 20 years ago, uh, all four of them entered uh, skilled nursing care. And so they, they really were in tune with this. So they're very aggressive with this. They wanted to be aggressive, but then we worked through their assets. And I said, you really shouldn't be. You're going to affect your quality of life and independence the next, you know, 20 years of your life. Why would you do that to yourself, right? So you got to have some sense of what your budget is. I don't care what your budget is, but I want to go back to that word accumulating, Dave. That's what I ask of every client who starts this conversation with me. Are you accumulating? I don't need to the penny. I don't really care what you're spending on your cell phone bill. Please don't tell me. But you have to have a sense of what is your lifestyle cost? What's your regular recurring monthly income? Are you exceeding that? Are you saving that? You know, people are all over the place. If you find you're accumulating, you know, you're not really dipping into principle for other than like big things like vacations or roof repairs, you know, and you're fairly well into retirement. So you're relatively stable in your lifestyle. You know, when you pass that age factor test, you pass that health test, so to speak. And now we're passing this finance test. That's the third of my four factors. Yep. Well, then we can end with motivation, right? Still, this is a first meeting with clients on this subject. Well, okay, why are you doing this? I make people tell me, you know, articulate in your own words. Why are you doing this? A lot of people, Dave, no surprise, say, oh, I want, to, I want everything for my spouse. I want my spouse to be safe, secure, independent, uh, as long as they can be, high quality life. I don't want my illness or long-term care costs to affect them. Okay, good. Great. Glad we got that out of the way. That's pretty standard and straightforward. <laughs> yep. And probably the Medicaid laws as they exist, the eligibility rules we've already discussed will already permit that, believe it or not. Yep. Medicaid eligibility rules become especially harsh when you're a single individual. So really what I'm getting at, Dave, is what's the motivation beyond spouse? Yeah, sure, there's some things we could do to protect spouse, but, but not really. That's not really asset protection. Body. What we're really doing is the next generation. Are you highly motivated to protect for children? You know, um, or other heirs or charities, you know, or it, it, could, it could be more than that. An awful lot of folks think, boy, I came from humble origins. 
I've worked hard, I've been prudent, I've pinched pennies, and the concept of spending all of this money in the last years of my life would just like, destroy me. I get that. Yep. I get that completely. So there could be different motivations, there could be different missions, and it's really important for people to have that. Uh, otherwise, why do this? You know, why do this? Yeah. So, so Dave, we get past these four factors, and then I can get into sort of you know what are their specific assets and 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 some actual options, which I kind of want to explore next. Ken, I want to point out one thing that you mentioned, sure. and just to make this clear again, and you said it very clearly, but I want to make sure that everybody was paying attention because I've seen this a lot. And going back to the finances, budget, accumulating, and the two questions for retirement that we always ask as financial advisors are how much money do you need? Where's it going to come from? People don't like the word budget. You're absolutely right. You could even rename it cash flow, and people just feel better about it. <laughs> so, right, right. But what I find when people are talking about long-term care settings or skilled nursing care, or it's almost like they're trying to win a game. Like, don't give away money. This is this is unsolicited advice. Please do not give away money to your own detriment just to try to beat a nursing home situation where that may not even happen. Right. So, right. and I'm telling you, I run into that. It's, oh, I did this, I did that, but now I don't have enough to pay my bills. Right. Not, not a good move. There are other ways and people to see like Ken that can help us out with that. So I wanted to reiterate the point when you do the financing or the finances part of this, just making sure people that are, <laughs> they're not doing it to their own detriment. That's all. Well, well said, Dave. Yesterday, somebody came in and the first thing they said is I want to put, I want to protect them. Yep. And I get, I get that sense, but you can't have it both ways. Protecting everything for this person. And they were, they were very clear on that. Right. I had to kind of yep. coax them away from them. Like, okay, fine. But now you don't have anything, you know? Right. So, uh, or at least you've significantly lost control over just about everything. And, and so I guess, I think it would be helpful to talk about uh, what kinds of gifting, I say gifting, everybody out there, we're thinking proactive. We want to preserve, protect, shelter. That means gift. That means loss of control. Right, well, what, what are some kinds of gifts or gifting that can be done? Uh, and then, and then maybe, we, maybe we talk a little bit about specific assets. So yeah. what are some options? And then what are some assets and things you do? Right? Sounds great. Some All right. So first, of course, you can do outright gifting. Outright. That's where you literally give away property, not to your spouse, right? Medicaid, remember this. Medicaid treats spouses as an entity. There is a set of rules that govern the entity of a married relationship. So you got to get it out of that entity, right? So you give it to kids outright. Dave, I almost never counsel that. It's an option. And so I talk about it, uh, but there are so many negatives with that approach. They quickly outweigh the positives. You know, some obvious negatives are that's complete loss of control. Complete, right? It's went from your bank account to your kids. Now it's, of course, subject. You might love your kids. They might be wonderful, amazing, right? Independent, accountable, great communicators. Regardless, it's now subject to their creditors. Right? Their divorces, their bankruptcies, right? their deaths, their spendthriftness, nature, whatever. Mm -hmm. right? So that's probably just giving up a little bit too much control. Furthermore, why I don't really like outright gifts, uh, amongst many other reasons, I'm only going to explore this one. So remember the five-year look back, right? Remember the, the idea, the notion that we do no harm, don't want to affect their, negatively affect their daily you know, uh, standard of living. We also don't want to do any harm, right? What if we, we tried to be proactive? Maybe we were a little aggressive on our scale. You know, maybe we weren't so conservative. And what if we miss? And we swung and we missed, you know? And, and now, you know, mom, 
or your spouse or whatever is in a long-term care setting. And we really are in that situation where we're putting together that 12 or 18 inch set of binders on a Medicaid application. And we're like, darn, we did that outright gift, you know, 58 months ago, for instance. Yep. Uh, you might need to get that back. You might need to get that back. It's very hard to get to get that back in order to undo the, the transfer penalty. We talked about this, so I'm not going to repeat it. Uh, to undo the transfer penalty, the, the disqualification period that you have as a result from Medicaid. You know, that, that gift is harming you now. Wait, four and a half years later. Yeah, sure, that happens. And if you've done an outright gift, good luck. Good luck. Yeah, trying to get back. How often does that happen, Ken? Do you see that a lot? Uh, all the time, all the time, God, all the time. And but the good thing is, usually when I see it, they're relatively small dollar values. This okay. gets into more of the Medicaid application, which was the last meeting. But I see it all the time. Folks give away things; they they do it on their own, they, or they get bad advice, or they just they think they know the rules. They're not really meeting with a with a, a skilled elder law, elder law attorney. If it's relatively small, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars, then there's there are creative ways we can work around that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a problem. It needs to be disclosed. We need to address it. And it might end up costing them more than that dollar value of long-term care costs. So it was the wrong thing to do, but it's not like, uh, it's not something we can't work through. The problem becomes when it's amounts larger than that, um, and that it's, it's really impossible to work through. And then that's where you get into litigation and you get into possible discharges from your favored care settings. That's where you violate this right care uh, at the right place notion that we've talked about earlier. So yes, avoid outright gifts. I want one more, one more, one more point about outright gifts. I said I'd only say one more thing, but I can't. <laughs> I'll do one more. Keep it rolling. <laughs> you know, I think about I think about a case I had several years ago, and it really illustrates this point well. Point well. Grandparents often love their grandkids, right? Uh, and love doesn't mean give them money. Uh, but in this particular situation, it was a very close relationship with granddaughter and grandparents. Uh, if my mother served me, she might have been the only grandchild, um, but the grandparents de really desperately wanted to help her pay for a house. And so they gave her a significant sum, near six figures, for this house. Um, gratefully, the granddaughter uh, said, thank you, right? Wrote a card that was postmarked. And on the check, grandma wrote down uh, for deposit for home. And then there were a lot more factors. Grandma and grandpa had a significant amount of assets, so it wasn't like they impoverished themselves. You know, uh, they were both in good, relatively good health for their ages when this gift, outright gift to granddaughter was made. Fast forward four years. It was a significant gift. Grandpa is now very sick, living in a skilled nursing setting with a $16,000 a month bill. This gift comes up. We're worried, right? They've spent through a lot of funds already, privately paying for care. Uh, we were able to argue under New York law, that this outright gift should not be, and the word is sanctionable. It shouldn't cause grandpa a penalty period of ineligibility for Medicaid because the gift was not made for Medicaid purposes. It really was for a different, distinct, identifiable, supportable purpose. We won on that case, but folks don't think to... Don't think you're going to win on these cases. They're very hard to win, you know? So avoid, uh, avoid outright gifts. Right? But, but yes, I'm aware that there are a lot of other reasons, good, valid reasons people might make gifts. And if that happens, Dave, you asked if it happens. It happens all the time. If it happens, I often find myself in this position where we have to, it's called rebut, where we rebut the county's, the Medicaid's presumption that the gift should cause a period of ineligibility. Okay? Yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty darn common. Comes up all the time. Okay. 
Hey, interesting. Interesting. I love, I love the real examples. I, I got, I got more about, you know, cash under the table to pay home health aides because you love the home health aides and the home health aides are worried about taxes. Yada, yada, yada. That might make a lot of sense for the care that you want, but boy, that causes a heck of a problem and no ability to rebut that presumption. You will lose that case. Right. Yep. All right. So outright gifting, that's one type of gifting. Let's go through two more types, life estate deeds. That's a good one. And irrevocable trust, irrevocable, cannot be revoked. Let's think, trusts, right? These are three kinds of gifting, outright to the kids or whoever, life estate deeds, irrevocable trusts. Generally do not like outright deeds at all. I love life estate deeds for these reasons. They're cheap in terms of legal fees. They're simple to understand. They're transparent. It is a deed. None of us really prepare deeds unless you're a lawyer, but you understand, everybody inherently understands what a deed is. Typically it's two pages, maybe three, and it simply says who owns property, right? You could read them and generally really understand it, right? <laughs> so it's cheap, it's easy, it's simple, it's tra transparent, it's just a deed, it's a couple of pages long. I really like that option. Let's compare that with a third option, irrevocable trusts. Irrevocable trusts are, unlike life estate deeds, expensive, complex, not easy to understand, come with an administrative burden. There are things that continually need to be done in order to properly administer the trust. Wait a second. You don't need to be a Medicaid lawyer to know I choose cheap, easy, simple, rather than hard, expensive, complex, right? Most people, right? Right, right. So, so it's my it's my job uh, after we've gone through all these factors, after I've spent some time with you, I know what your assets are. We know what is exposed. Remember that from probably our Medicaid 101 session. Yep, yep. Um, I, I could help guide you into which one of these options makes the most sense. Let me give you an example. If you have no exposed assets, this is not the answer for everybody, but it's sort of my fact that, or my, my logical algorithm, if you will, I go through. If you have no other exposed asset, assets, right? No cash that's exposed. So you're not thinking about moving money, but you've got, you know, a Florida property uh, or your primary home that's got a lot of value to it, you know? So all you've got exposed, if you will, is a home. And there's really very little chance you think you'll ever sell it. This is the crystal ball moment. Like, let's imagine we have a crystal ball. We don't, let's imagine. And you don't think you're going to sell that property. Well, then a life estate deed, cheap, easy, simple, might be the perfect solution. Might be the perfect solution. Um, I want to quickly compare that with an irrevocable trust. Then I'll go in a little bit more detail on both those options. If instead you have some property you want to protect, the value, we're thinking the value of the property, uh, and you think there's a pretty good chance that you'll sell it at some point while you're alive. Or you might not sell it, but you have some cash that you want to protect, want to shelter, preserve. You don't mind giving away, transferring some money out of your name. Not outright to the kids, mind you, but you want to keep some strings attached to it. Well, then your only option is irrevocable trust. So if you think there's a chance you're going to sell, or you want to also protect cash in addition to property, real property, then your only real option is an irrevocable trust. You have to do the complex, expensive approach. Um, and so 
you know, I started framing it like you've got these two options, but typically most folks, it becomes kind of a foregone conclusion, which one makes more sense for them, right? And I, I don't care which it is, you know, you've got to be fully informed and empowered and you make these decisions, but, you know, you follow through the logic of the benefits uh, to one approach over the other, and it usually dictates what your, what your legitimate option is, you know? So for example, this morning, Dave, clients I was with, have property in two states, New York and Florida, pretty common. Um, and they have no exposed assets. You know, remember the eligibility rules. They had a lot of assets, but none of them were exposed. You know, they had a lot of retirement accounts. And so, and they intended to hold these properties forever. And I said, now there are some detriments. The wife is like, I'll go on in a minute. But if that's really their intention and they weren't, you know, they didn't have a, a, a large capacity, you know, for administrative burden. They, they, in other words, they wanted things to be as simple, clean, easy as possible and lowest legal fees possible. Well, for them, life is like, maybe it makes an awful lot of sense. Yeah. Okay, and that's kind of where we left it this morning. Um, and I've got handouts on all these subjects that I try to uh, put it all in writing for people to take away from meetings. I don't want them making these decisions in the first meeting, you know, so they can digest it all. I know I talk fast. Uh, no, you're good. The, Ken, this, it's, this is exactly why, why we're doing what we're doing, right? This, it, we're, we're doing a podcast so that people can, if they want to rewind it and listen to it again, it's unlike anything else where people, instead of going in for a meeting, it's basically like having a meeting with Ken over a podcast and without the execution of all of the things. So right, right, it just right. helps, helps us be more informed. So I love it. I love the pieces that you have. And we talked about that in the last episode, by the way. So just get a hold of Ken or myself and we can get you those pieces if you would like. But right. um, Ken, let's move on to asset protection just because I, I've said this at least 20 times in our three episodes. We could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, as we know. Let's move on to the asset protection because this is what I get. And this was the original purpose of why I wanted somebody on here. And it's the very last piece of our last segment, by the way, which actually makes sense. But I oftentimes have clients that will say, well, I don't want, again, I don't want the nursing home to take this. What is, what can they do? And we've talked about this a little bit before with the retirement account, or what if my retirement account is an annuity? Or what if I have the stock with I've put in a hundred thousand and now it's grown to 300,000. So can you get into like how we are protecting these exposed assets? Sure. Sure. I think maybe it helps to talk about particular assets. Now I, I want to qualify everything I'm about to say with notion we've talked about before. I feel very strongly about ensuring first we're getting the right care at the right place. There's that concept of show me money and the balancing of the three interests, the individual, the client, right? Their healthcare independence with the long-term care setting of their choice and making sure you've got a good relationship there and also Medicaid, not offending Medicaid's rules, right? So there's three mm -hmm. uh, legs to that chair. If we can be reasonably assured that we've do accomplished all that first, and let's look at the assets and decide, can we protect that asset? I like to talk about uh, real estate first because you really got those two options. Life estate deeds, guys, make an awful lot of sense for a lot of people. Yeah, you get a lot more bells and whistles with an irrevocable trust if you end up selling that property uh, during your lifetime, uh, which I won't, we don't have time to go into today. Um, and there are other bells and whistles, even if you don't sell this property in your lifetime, that maybe the irrevocable trust makes sense for you. But for real estate, that's really where you're going. Life estate deed or, or irrevocable trust. For cash, if it's exposed, by cash, I mean checking savings accounts, money market accounts, stock bond investment accounts. I mean, non-retirement, you know, you're yep. talking about capital appreciation on an asset. Well, you know, with cash, irrevocable trust, again, makes an awful lot of sense. Now there's some tax considerations. We got to make sure this is the right kind of trust. 
so that uh, the, the people who ultimately end up with it don't end up paying more capital gains than they're supposed to on that appreciation point interest raised. But we can certainly accomplish all that with a trust, right? Not without right gifting, by the way. You also lose, you know, that that uh, it's also bad from a, from a capital gains standpoint. Um, I'm saving annuities for last because they're the most problematic. Okay. Let's talk about life insurance. I love life insurance, honestly, uh, uh, from a Medicaid exclusive standpoint. Uh, I'm not the life insurance advisor. I'm not the financial advisor. Yada, yada. I've said it before. Don't take my advice on those <laughs> subjects. But if somebody presents to me with a particularly large term policy that maybe is going to go on for a little while, okay, maybe. But otherwise, usually I'm talking about sometimes universal policies, but more likely permanent or whole insurance, right? Yep. And those typically have lower cash values than death benefits, right? And, and those have their own purposes. People want it at that age for certain reasons. Well, hold on a second, think about it. You're not actually using that life insurance. Maybe you are, there's unique circumstances where you might be leveraging that cash value for other purposes. Uh, but broadly speaking, most folks, you know, you have that life insurance with no intention of ever using it during your lifetime. The express purpose is to pay a larger death benefit than its cash value to your heirs, right? Yep. So the notion of giving away that asset to a trust who can man, who can main, which can maintain any premium obligations to start a five-year clock on that cash value of that policy, preserving the death benefit is a wonderful idea. Even if you get in a period uh, of ineligibility in Medicaid, and we have this problem, we're applying for Medicaid, oh, I wish I didn't do it. Well, maybe not, because maybe the sanctionable gift is $30,000 of cash value, where the real benefit to you, because that's what Medicaid treats. Medicaid only talks about the cash value. of The, the real benefit is $100,000 or $200,000 death benefit. Heck, I'd take a $30,000 penalty to save a $200,000 death benefit any day. No doubt right? about it. Yep. So, so you know, go, going back to what are your options, you know, that's reason enough in some cases to do an irrevocable trust. Annuities are really problematic. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm hopeful I can articulate well this thing I call, uh, I call, I've never, I haven't heard it elsewhere, that I call the triple whammy effect of annuities. That's that's a legal term, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you can find that in, in, in legal dictionaries. Um, annuities are problematic. Stated differently, uh, and what I often tell my clients is Medicaid, law abhors annuities. It just treats them differently. And don't ask for logic here. Just go with this, okay? Everybody went, why? What is it? Let's go with that retirement account. Remember Medicaid 101 or 201, I can't remember which, we said that retirement accounts, IRAs, 401ks, mm -hmm. um, are exempt assets. You've got $500,000 in an IRA, that's treated as zero from a Medicaid standpoint, great. Now Medicaid gets the RMD, you know, the, the payout status amount of that. I'm not repeating that. But what if that same IRA, instead of being invested in just, you know, a standard brokerage account with stocks and bonds or whatever, by the way, you can have IRAs invested in checking accounts too, right? Right. Seen these. Yep. But instead of that, you've got that IRA in an annuity. An annuity is just an investment vehicle. That's all it is. It's kind of a contract between you and, 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 a, and a financial institution to provide a certain kind of benefits, the annuity benefit, merely because that retirement account is invested within an annuity you no longer get the exemption treatment. That is now considered an available resource. That's the first of the three whammies. Bad. That's Don't a huge whammy. That's a huge one. That's enough to not even consider doing, you know, going any further, get it out of an annuity. So I often find myself trying to tell clients, look at, 
I don't want to get too far into whether or not the annuity makes sense from an investment standpoint. I'm not an investment advisor. Talk to Dave. But but can we get out of it? You know, it, or has it been annuitized? You know, have you irrevocably given up already your your right to the actual principal, the, the investment you put into that annuity? That happens often. That's the double whammy because the moment. So the first already terrible. Annuities are considered available resources, even if it's retirement fund. The second is if it's been annuitized and you've, you know, that's where you get, gotta get that income stream back, right, Dave? I mean, you know more about annuities than I do, but like you don't, you, lo you lose the ability to cash it out and instead you've contracted for and you get this certain amount of income every month the rest of your life, right? Correct, yep. Yeah, then broadly speaking, right? I, I, Broad, I, very I, broadly, yep. Yeah, I often say there's as many different kinds of annuities as there are cars on the roads, right? It's just contracts with different terms, you know? So I'm just staying broad here today. All right. The second of the triple whammies on it is the moment of that annuitization. The moment that happened, that you gave up that right, Medicaid will treat that as a gift. Wait a second. Hold on. They're already treating it as an asset. Now they're treating that moment you annuitize this thing and gave up your right, they're treating that as a gift subject to the gift penalty rules. Yes, they will. So it's an asset and you're also going to get gift penalties as a result of it. It has everything to do with your life expectancy and whether or not you're going to get that principal back during your life expectancy. And oftentimes you're not, particularly at the late age in which a lot of folks annuitize these things. So <clears throat> you might have no assets because this has been annuitized. You're going to be ineligible for Medicaid because of the annuitization. I can almost guarantee it. The triple whammy, the third negative. Guess who's got to be the beneficiary of that annuity? Now, there are some exceptions, spouse, you know, disabled child, but let's just say most folks, Medicaid requires New York State Department of Health to be the beneficiary of that annuity. Yeah. So you're getting yeah. hurt all the way around on this annuity. Wow. I mean, and the bigger the annuity, the, the worse oh, it is. Right, 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 right. Absolutely right. So, and Kenny, I mean, you obviously run into this because of what you do, but I also see this very consistently. And I'm not going to get into who's advising and who's a good advisor and a bad advisor, but I way too often will see somebody that's 68 years old, be put into an annuity with a 15 year surrender charge on it or something. And it's like, what, what are we doing? Um, now <laughs> I should just hit replay on the last two minutes of what you just said, just to prove right. my point from a third party. I mean, I know this stuff, but when it's coming from us, it, it sounds like it's almost like a reverse sale, right? So it's not what we're trying to do, but I'm, I'm so happy you went into the detail with the annuities. <laughs> the, the triple right. whammy is a true whammy. I mean, that's, the, uh, the second whammy to me is the, the annuitization. Just please be careful. If you're listening to this and you're considering it, but by the way, and I know Ken knows this too, and he's saying this many times, it does make sense. Otherwise we, they wouldn't be available products, but please just be thoughtful and careful with annuities, know the surrender charges, know the fees. And then on the other side of it, the Medicaid planning implications that you may not, I can almost guarantee I'll say one out of a hundred advisors go through the Medicaid implications of having a, an annuity in there. So, um, Ken, is there anything else to add? That's so much. We appreciate the time Medicaid 101, 201, 301. We got a ton of value from this. And again, I know you're a very busy guy. We know how to get a hold of you from our other two episodes. Um, and if anybody needs to get a hold of me, 
to get, get in touch with Ken, it's dpolsini at sixpointfp.com. Visit us on our website, check out our LinkedIn. Ken, any final words for our, for our Medicaid series here? No, I look at guys, this is all doom and gloom. Medicaid, <laughs> right? But I hope you sense for me, uh, I try to have fun with it. Let's keep things in perspective. I, I don't let the, you know, the famous saying, towel wag the dog. Um, I, I hope, I, I suspect you know that. I want informed clients. I want perspective. I want reasonable, prudent, informed decisions. Um, and, and it's different for different folks. And I'd be honored to help uh, step through some of this with you guys. Uh, phone number 585-787-7000. Uh, Dave, this has been an awful lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Ken. Make it a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Dear Rochester Retire Well podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Six Point Financial Partners. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Content here is for illustrative and educational purposes only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice, nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific trading strategy. Results will vary. Past performance is no indication of future results or success. Market conditions change continuously. This commentary reflects the personal opinions, viewpoints, and analysis of Six Point Financial Partners. It does not necessarily represent those of RFG Advisory, Private Client Services, their clients, or their employees. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by Six Point Financial Partners or RFG Advisory or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. Securities offered by registered representatives of private client services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered by investment advisory representatives of RFG Advisory, a registered investment advisor. Private client services, Six Point Financial Partners, and RFG Advisory are unaffiliated entities. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where RFG Advisory and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advisory services may be rendered by RFG Advisory unless a client agreement is in place.